All right, you got your camera? You got a bag? You ready to go? Jump on in. We're heading down the road. My name's April, and I'm an award-winning landscape photographer and tour guide. I've been leading small group photo tours for over 20 years. For photographers, non-photographers, and anyone else that just likes to go for a great trip. So welcome to my podcast, Eyes for the Road. Thanks for joining me tonight. I've got a great interview lined up today with the woman that's been dubbed the James Bond of car photographers by Motor Trend Magazine. She's been at it for many years, spy photography and espionage are at the top of her list. So I'm really excited to chat with her. I've been following her photography of car work for years and she's been published in many uh, publications and gotten some of the first photos of many of the new cars as they've been released and endures quite some uh, difficult situations and some extreme locations to get these shots. But before we jump into that interview, I do want to share some tips if you're getting onto the road yourself for the holidays and driving to see your relatives or friends. So here are my tips. Make sure to check out your vehicle. You know, double check that all the tire pressures are good. Make sure that you have a spare tire, that you have tools if you do get pulled over. Um, Double check that none of the fluids need to be replaced, that you don't have a broken windshield wiper. Any of these small things may seem small if you're just driving a few miles back and forth to work, but if you're planning a long trip for a holiday weekend, it's important to get your car checked and have it in good working order. Number two, keep the windows clean. And I always advise if you're doing a driving trip, keep some window cleaner and some paper towels handy. Often just some overnight moisture can really muck up the windows bugs, birds, you name it. So you want to keep those windows clean and make sure to wipe off the headlights and taillights. In situations with low light or fog or snow, you want to be seen. You want other vehicles to be able to see you out there. So that's very important. Also, pack an emergency kit. I live in California and often we don't think about things like snow unless we're heading to the mountains. We do think about rain occasionally out here, but pack an emergency kit. What if you're to get stranded? Do you have an extra blanket? Do you have maybe some flares? Do you have something to get some people's attention? Your cell phone may not always work. There's still parts of the United States I travel um, that are perfectly safe places to travel, of course, but there's limited cell reception in some areas. So be sure you've got an emergency kit for yourself. And always some snacks and drinks. You may not be able to pull off the road. You may get into a situation again where you're in bumper to bumper traffic for hours. Maybe there's some road construction or unexpected delays on the road. You want to have some snacks for yourself and the people riding with you. Make sure to have plenty of water and some snacks and foods, um, nuts, some protein items, things that necessarily don't have to stay cold um, or vice versa, don't necessarily need to be warmed up. You know, you're gonna be in the car and you might be in the car, you know, oftentimes we're taking an eight hour road trip to get to our relatives for the holiday weekend. And those eight hours can easily stretch because everyone else is out there on the road. So snacks and drinks. 
Number five, check your route. I can't stress this enough. Uh, a lot of us get used to having a GPS or our phone tell us where we're turning, where we're going, and we don't even think to throw a paper map into the car anymore. But it's very important to check the route. And if you're gonna be the driver, go over the route a few minutes, um, you know, right when you're getting into the car, know what town you're headed towards. A lot of the road signs won't necessarily have your route number marked on them. And this is common in the United States even today. You'll be driving a road and they won't reiterate what route or state route or county route you're on. And you need to know, it's very easy to get turned around, dis, you know, slightly disoriented and end up driving miles and miles out of your way in the wrong direction. So kind of have an idea what towns and cities, and it's also beneficial to know where these towns and cities are so you can kind of Think, you know, if you need a bathroom stop or if you do run into a problem, you have a place that you potentially could stop at and um, go into a business. Really, I rarely see pay phones anymore. So, you know, again, you're going to have to stop at a business if you had an emergency and make a phone call or stay the night somewhere, so to speak. Be sure to keep cash on hand. Some small towns... Um, you run into mom and pop restaurants, um, mom and pop establishments and businesses that don't take credit cards. And especially on a holiday weekend, don't, don't count on just stopping at the ATM. The line may be long. You may be tight on time and think, oh, I'll just hop in the car, got my credit card. But some of the small businesses in some of these small towns that may be on your route, cash only. So be sure to have some cash on hand. And as I said before, I may have reiterated it earlier, know your route. Take a look at your route, have some options in case there is bad weather, things can pop up unexpectedly, November, December. You've got ch changing weather patterns out there. You may have started on a day where it's 90 degrees in LA, but if you're headed towards Colorado or the mountains, a uh, storm system can move in fairly quickly and drop the temperature drop snow, drop ice, and you want to have a plan. You know, if you need to pull off, you know, be safe. You'll get to see your friends and family, but most importantly, be safe and have a great holiday. So without further ado, let's hear from 007 herself, the James Bond of Car Spy Photographers, Brenda Pretty. And thanks again for listening. Let's get started. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Brenda Pretty. I'm going to apologize ahead of time. I hope the audio quality is good. I know that's something I've been kind of working on when I'm doing these, you know, on my cell phone, recording them on my lunch hour. So in true car spy photography uh, spirit, I am sitting in my car at lunch, you know, just doing this um, on the down low. So <laughs> let's just well, get that's started. That's way. <laughs> Yeah, that's the way. Exactly. I like it. So hopefully the audio is good. And um, uh, welcome, Brenda. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, April. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah. So can I ask where you're, where you're at today? Or is that top secret? Actually, today is not a very exciting day. I am, I am in the process of moving. So I'm packing up my house. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm covered with dust and, and tape and adhesive and all sorts of stuff at the moment. Oh my goodness. 
So are you still doing um, primarily the car photography? Are you, where are you at now? I know you've worn many hats throughout your career. Yeah, you know, well, I started with spy photos in about 1992. And um, I did it pretty much, well, it was full-time. I did it for a little over 20 years. And I, I still dabble in it. But now I've kind of expanded to other things, and I, I shoot concours, and um, you know I, I did one trip down Route 66. I can't wait to go again. Um, I've taken groups of people to Cuba to see the cars on the roads on, on, in Cuba. So I'm kind of doing a little of, of everything. Wow, that's great. So how did you get yeah. started in the car, the spy photography? I mean, that's just. It's exciting. I mean, it's just, especially, <laughs> I hate to say it, but I think as a woman, too, I think cars and that type of industry has always kind of been, you know, dominated by men. And so. Yeah, well, it was kind of by accident. There was, um, I think it was on a Saturday, and I was driving past the local grocery store in 1992, and I had two toddlers in the back seat, <laughs> and I spotted a car that was disguised, a camouflaged car. And, you know, I didn't think much of it, except that my husband always talked about test cars and seeing them on the roads. So I went back home and got my camera. Um, and I had a very, very strong photography background. Uh, but I, I got my camera and took pictures. And we called one magazine, we called Automobile Magazine. And they said, well, you know, we have some pictures. We're not that interested. And John said, well, you have to see these. And they sent FedEx by, picked up the, the negatives, and it ended up on their cover for the following November. Wow. Yeah, so my first spy photo was, was a cover shot. <laughs> that is super exciting. <laughs> Can you yeah, yeah, yeah and, and it was very unintentional. Um, but then the phone call started. You know, once it hit the cover... Um, I, I got calls from literally all around the globe, publications giving me their wish lists for, you know, a few photos they would like. Um, let's see, I got a call from somebody who claimed they were with Ford telling me not to do it again and they were getting in trouble. <laughs> and I was interviewed by Playboy. So it was like, it, it was just amazing. So, you know, I took everybody's contact name and, and number and, um, I just kind of stumbled into it. I, I kept on finding more cars as the weeks went on and as months and years. And that's what I devoted myself to doing. Wow. So in the beginning, where did you even know, you know, after the first, you know, photos and getting on the cover to know where to begin? Now you're getting requests. I mean, now what? Oh, well, you know, it was very I don't know, strange, I guess. Um, but whoever was testing the first group of Fords was literally testing them in my neighborhood. I lived on a loop road with no stop signs, and it was just perfect for them to keep on driving and driving and driving. And so, gosh, you know, I don't even remember how many cars I shot wow. in that same spot in, in probably a two-year period. Um, either around the circle, which I could see from my home, uh, in my children's elementary school parking lot, 
uh, eventually they moved to some other school parking lots throughout the community. So I literally, you know, I, I just had to drive around town um, to see where they might be. I, I learned what hotels they stayed at. Um, they might park their cars covered at the hotels, but they obviously have to uncover them to drive to wherever they're going to do testing. Right. So there was just a lot of, uh, a lot of surveillance. <laughs> at first there was a lot of luck and then there was a lot of surveillance. And then I started, um, deciding, well, I need some other manufacturers and General Motors, their proving grounds wasn't too far away. So I would, go out there and, and spend an afternoon driving the roads near General Motors or Nissan or Volkswagen or Toyota or Volvo um, or Chrysler. So I, I lived uh, I live in Arizona and there were proving grounds all around the city of Phoenix at one time. Now there aren't quite as many. Mm-hmm. But it was it wasn't easy but if you devoted you know, your work day to it, you often got lucky. Right. And and of course you had to have good pictures. I mean they're not they they weren't pictures taken you know with an iPhone or you know they they weren't blurry they weren't um, they were close up they were detailed and they showed what the magazines wanted to see. Right. Yeah. And you said you had a background in photography prior to that. So what was your previous photography background? Oh, you know what? I was probably born with a camera in my hand. <laughs> so I have taken pictures forever. Um, I have a degree in commercial photography. And I had a little studio. I didn't do very much, but I had a little studio that I had set up in my home. Uh, so, you know, I always I always was photographing something. I just never expected it to be cars. <laughs> right. Oh, but that's so exciting. So were there a lot of challenges when you were doing the full-time, you know, in the trenches kind of car photography? Well, you know, it's it's one of those things that the people that are testing, the engineers, don't want their photos taken. Mm. So, you know, they're, um, they're not too happy. Uh, there are threats, um, usually verbal, but there's occasionally, you know, physical altercations. Um, so those are some of the challenges, uh, others you have to, you know, if you see something, you might have to follow it for six or seven hours before you oh, have wow. an opportunity to get pictures from literally all around the vehicle, all the size and, and the quality vehicle, you know, the quality photos that I would want to put my name on. Um, so there were those kind of challenges. And then it got to the point that in the summertime, I decided that the best place to get spy photos would be going to the hot weather testing. So I would literally move to Death Valley in that oh area, gosh. Death Valley National Park. Yeah, and it got to the point, you know, when my kids were young, I would just spend a few days there and then fly home, or you know, whatever. Or we do a family vacation for a week. But once my children were older and adults, I would literally move to Death Valley for about four months every year. So it was a lot of work, yeah, <laughs> um, and a lot of a lot of twenty hour days too. Um, I'm, I'm still not recovered from all the twenty hour days. No, but um, yeah, it was it was a lot of work. Did the companies once you got in with the publications and you know got a name obviously for yourself pretty quickly with the cover photos, like you mentioned? Um, 
different people contacted you with quote wish lists were those sometimes difficult to fulfill or was that kind of exciting in the fact that okay I've got a mission now so to speak well you know the first few times somebody would call me from Europe especially I would just you know be shaking my head it was like what are they talking about but I would write everything down and um, you know you couldn't always fulfill it but it was exciting when you, you were able to catch something that, you know, matched exactly what they were looking for and matched their deadline and, and so on. Um, and, you know, deadlines, it wasn't like the internet, you know, deadlines for print publications were usually six to eight weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, they needed it before press. So it was, it was a very different time. Um, these days you shoot something and, and you have to find an internet connection quickly you know, to get it out to the publications before any competition or any anybody with an iPhone gets it to the publications. Oh, right. Wow. That's probably really changed the landscape, so to speak, of the whole... Um, you know, one thing that changed is, you know, I, I, I don't know if the publications are as concerned about the quality of the images anymore as they are about the quantity. Mm-hmm. So, or, or what the images are going to cost them. So, you know, when I started, publications were really happy to pay. And now, if somebody calls one of the major publications or a website, oftentimes the publications expect to get them for free. Oh, You know, wow. unless you're an established company. And so it's, it's very different than it, than it used to be. Right. Yeah. Um, what do you think makes a good car image, or do you think that's changed somewhat as well since you mentioned Oh, gosh. Um, you know, you, you really need a good, sharp photo, first of all. Um, it doesn't matter if the car is standing still or, or moving on the highway. They just have to be sharp and in focus. Uh, and then one photo just won't do it for a spy photo. Um, but I, I think that 20 photos can be too much. Um, you know, I think that if you have a package of six to eight photos that show all around the car and possibly something through the window, that's really good. And, and, and that's a good way to present, you know, an offer to a publication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are there specific, um, have the publications as such changed? I mean, because you notice a little bit some of the print publications have started to dry up. Again, just not as many purchaser so things are moving online um they've changed they i don't think they use as many spy photos as they used to there were weekly publications that would use photos every single week you know and now you're lucky to see some you know once a month at the most uh so sometimes they they don't have as much of a budget or they choose not to use their budget for spy photos as much as they used to. Yeah. And I think the cars have changed a little. I mean, um, I don't know. There doesn't seem to be as much, I don't know, as a kid. I mean, I grew up slightly after all those 60s and 70s cars, but even back then there just seemed to be more interesting designs and colors. And and now it's like sometimes I see a super expensive car driving down the freeway in LA and you wouldn't be able to tell it from a Kia or something. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I know. I saw a Maserati the other day and from the, from the quick view when I was driving on the highway, I thought it was a Buick. 
Yeah. <laughs> it, it wasn't until it passed me that I realized, oh, wait, this is New York. This is Maserati. Um, and, and then even, you know, within the Owen Browns, you know, um, you don't, it, it's difficult. I, I know exactly what you're saying. And I, I look at it from a spy photo point of view where, you know, you're studying a car and it's, it's like, well, is this a Hyundai or a Kia? Or is this a Buick or is this a Cadillac? And, um, yeah, they, they just don't stand out on their own like they used to a long time ago. Right. But it's, it's different. But, you know, I, I actually prefer, um, if I'm photographing cars these days, I actually prefer, like, pre-war, like, 1940s cars or earlier. Mm-hmm. Because of the design and, uh, you know, just all the styling and, and the beautiful hood ornaments and just all the details in the automobile. And I don't even like to call them cars. I, you know, I generally call those an automobile. Um, but, but that's what I've been enjoying photographing lately is, is a lot of the early cars. Yeah, I've noticed I love your Instagram feed because you always have just such a beautiful... I mean, like artwork in the hood ornaments and in the chrome detailing. I mean, just beautiful. Well, well, thank you. I I try. You know, another thing I do, and I think I think you do the same thing. You you normally shoot just with available light, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, definitely. And you know, that's what I do. And I I've done some speaking engagements, and I usually work with other photographers. Um, and the other photographers with the speaking engagements. You know, they're, they're commercial photographers and they, they have their studio and, and everything they shoot is under control, lighting-wise, even if they're outside. And I try to show the audience that I can do things in the middle of a car show at high noon when the sun is just awful to shoot cars and there could be thousands of people running around and yet I can come up with photos like this. Mm-hmm. And um, so that, that's what I'm kind of proud of is what I'm able to do under those kind of circumstances with just available light and no props. And just, you know, like I said, I try to share it with other people and let them know that they can do this too under these circumstances. Yeah, I think that's important. So are there favorite yeah. car shows now that are kind of favorites for those more, I don't know if you'd say, they're not exotic, because like I said, you know, like you mentioned too, pre-war or even 50s cars, there was just so much more art kind of put into the car itself, or I don't know. Oh, exactly. There's so many custom bodies too. Um, you know, I, I would, I love going to concourse. Um, I, I haven't gone to as many as I would have liked to, because, because quite frankly, as you know, it's expensive to, to go to shows, and sometimes I try to show, uh, chase shows around the country. Um, but it is difficult. We had a beautiful concourse in Arizona for four years, and they just discontinued it for 2018, which is very oh, sad. Oh, that is sad. Um, yeah. But, um, and I've never been to Pebble Beach. It's a really expensive, you know, few days to go to. Um, although this year I do have um, an album and, and photos on Facebook, and I call it the um, Monterey Week car shows that I missed. Because I was in the general area. My son got married that, that weekend. So I was in the general area. And, you know, I was, I was in Monterey and Carmel. And I managed to get some of the cars from the Concours or from the Quail show, but not at the show. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that was kind of fun. You know, like I said, it was, it was the car shows that I missed Monterey week, but I still have an album of, of photos that I'm posting. 
And uh, but I'd love to spend more time someplace like that during Car Week in Monterey. Um, you know, I also go to car auctions. You know, whether it's Bonhams or Bert Jackson or whatever. And I, I don't. I'm not really interested in the auction part itself. But I, I usually go on their preview days just to get photos of of some of the special cars that they have there. So how do the preview days work? Because that's actually something I hadn't even considered. And I love photographing cars. I love the whole car, kind of oh, older yeah. car culture, so to speak. And Well, you know, some of the um, auctions charge to go to preview days and some don't. Um, some offer a, a media pass for those in the media, which really for me is the only way I can afford to do that, you know, because mm-hmm. I can't afford to, you know, spend $100 to... Right. To photograph cars. Um, but, but, you know, it's funny because the, the auction week in Arizona, um, gosh, I don't even know how many auctions there will be this year. Uh, probably about seven or eight different wow. auction companies. Yeah. And then we used to have a concourse in the middle of it. But even though I live near Scottsdale, where most of these take place, mm-hmm. I usually put anywhere from 1,000 to 1,200 miles on my car literally just going back and forth from my home to the auction. Um, and I, I, I was thinking last year I should really just stay in Scottsdale. Yeah. But I have a few critters at my house that, you know, need to go out, need to be fed. So, you know, I kind of go back and forth. But, yeah, just a 1,000 miles or more in town just during car week. Oh, my gosh. And uh, so it's a, a crazy week here in Arizona. Uh, but it's not that different than the car week in, in Monterey, you know, with Pebble Beach and Quail and all the private parties and all the different different shows. Um, but there's an also uh, a beautiful concord that I've gone to a few times in Michigan. Um, it's, uh, I think now they go by the name of Concord of America. Years ago, they used to go by the name of Meadowbrook. And uh, that's a beautiful setting. But there must be... 20 or 30 others that, you know, I would love to go to um, someday. <laughs> yeah. And then you mentioned you leaked uh, photo tours to Cuba to see the cars. And I actually, that's something that really interests me. Um, so tell us a little bit about that, about going to Cuba, yeah. allure of the cars. And because I don't know uh-huh. if all of our listeners, you know. Well, it is amazing. I had always wanted to go to Cuba to photograph the cars. And I didn't realize it was legal to go under certain circumstances up until about 2012. Before that, I thought it was illegal. Right. And it was for different reasons. Um, but you could go for educational purposes. And so I went with a group and, you know, like, like I said, it was a strictly legal tour. We, we flew out of Florida on a charter flight. It was before airlines had regularly scheduled flights. And it was such an amazing trip. And I thought, you know what? I know so many people in the car industry that would love to go. So I found a tour director that's licensed to do tours in Cuba. Mm-hmm. And he and I worked with each other and had set up small group tours. And, you know, instead of um, like some of the, the tours that you might read about might have 30, 35 people, we usually have six to 10 and they're just an amazing, gosh, it's an amazing tour with always an amazing group of people. Um, and we, we follow all the, 
the laws to go there. Um, right. And and it's interesting because there was a new batch of laws that came out this week, and we've been following those guidelines for several years now. Um, so for us, it's nothing new, and it doesn't slow down our trips at all because, you know, we, we meet all the, the requirements. Um, but not all the travel agencies do, so it's going to be really interesting to see what's going to happen. Uh, but, but I go once or twice a year. My travel director is on all the trips, and he goes, gosh, he's probably been there 60 times. Oh, my goodness. Uh, as a matter of fact, wow. yeah, as, as a matter of fact, I organized a small private tour for a group of friends, and he's there now with this group. Um, I decided not to go on this tour because it kind of it sounded like it was a car guy's group. Oh yeah, guys, just guys, yeah. And I thought, you know, it's it's just best if I stay out of this one. But we do we do meet all the qualifications as an educational tour, and part of that is the places that Matt takes them, and that it's full time touring. You know, you're not really on your own to to go to the beach or scuba diving or whatever. You're you're touring the cultural places, and you're meeting Cubans and you're having a lot of interaction with, with people that live there. Um, the other thing that we do that just became a requirement this past week is that we stay in private homes mm. because um, the, most of the hotels are owned by the Cuban government and it's illegal to do any business with the Cuban government as such. Uh, It's actually the Cuban military that oversees the hotels and the state-owned restaurants and the new shopping mall. And so all those places are basically illegal for Americans to go to. (laughs) Interesting, because I don't know that people... Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, they just opened some sort of luxury mall in Old Havana, um, and it's illegal for Americans to go there. What's really interesting, though, a luxury mall in Havana, most Cubans wouldn't be shopping there because the average paycheck for a Cuban is about $25 a month. Yeah. So this mall would be catering to tourists from Europe, Asia, Russia, and so on. Right. Um, But not to Americans. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So do you have another tour coming up to Cuba to do the... Um, you know, currently I don't. I'm thinking that March would be a good time to go. Um, I'm watching the airlines closely because just today, Alaska Airlines uh, announced that they're going to be discontinuing flights to Cuba in November, uh, starting in January. <laughs> oh, wow. And, you know, about a year and a half ago, all these airlines moved in, and now probably, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but probably 30% have already either drastically cut back or stop service to Cuba. Um, so that's something I keep an eye on. Um, but, but I'd like to go back, I think, in March. It's a good time of year. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I just need at least six people that want to go. And yeah. uh, we, we completely customize the trip. You know, if, some, if a group wants to go for four days, we can do that. If they want to go for 10 days, we can do that. Um, you know, we customize where they want to go. Um, and like I said, we do all the cultural things that you need to do. But part of that is that we meet with people in the local car clubs. Uh, we meet with 
uh, a company that does car restorations. And um, we go to the, the auto museum. Uh, last time we went, it was actually closed, but they opened it up just for our group, which was oh wow, which was wonderful. Wow. Um, so we we do a lot of car things. We often rent old taxis or we have our own driver that has um, an old converted coffee truck that he it's now like a passenger van oh my goodness Um, yeah so it's it's just been a lot of fun and and we do as much car stuff as we can but we see a lot more of, of Cuba as well so why do you think um explain a little bit about why Cuba I mean is it because it's poor, they've kind of got all of these older cars, and a lot of them are American cars. Am I correct? Right. Well, because of the embargo, um, American cars have not been able to go from America to Cuba since um, about 1960. So most of the American cars in Cuba are pre-1960, but not always, because sometimes they'll come in from um Canada, you might see a 64 or 65, um, and or Mexico, and oftentimes you might see brand new cars in Cuba that are American cars, um, and again, they came in by way of another country, um, either for a business um, or an embassy, um, that kind of thing, but it's not unusual also to see, you know, a new Mercedes or a new Audi um, you know, that belong to somebody from the embassy or the embassy themselves. Yeah. So, but yeah, most of the American cars are are pre-1960 and because they weren't able to get parts, they've had to make a lot of their own parts. Um, It's been really difficult for them to keep the cars running. And then again, they they also make so little money that if, if you make $25 a month now, you know, you, you don't have the money to put into your automobile. No. Uh-uh. So, you know, they they work real hard. They're very resourceful people. And where a doctor might make 25 maybe $30 a month, it seems that people in the service industries in Cuba are the ones that are able to really do well because they get tips from uh, visitors. Mm. So it's the taxi drivers that will make a lot more money than a doctor. Um, possibly wait staff at restaurants. Uh, housekeeping, you know, you it's common to leave them, you know, one or two dollars a day. And if they only make $25 a month, that's huge if oh, they're left at that. Yeah. yeah. And just within the last few years, they've allowed Paladars to open, which are private restaurants and people's homes. Um, and again, you can eat at a Paladar, but you can't eat at a state-owned restaurant. That's oh. um, helped the Cuban economy. Um, Paladars, uh, Airbnb just officially started working with Cuba about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but most Cubans don't have internet at their home. Uh, very few do at their home uh, because there is no internet at people's homes except for a small test market in Havana. So they either have to go to a, a public Wi-Fi area where they pay about a dollar an hour to get online. Oh my gosh. Um, or they have a relative 
outside of the country handle all their scheduling. And then, you know, once a week they contact the people in Cuba somehow and say, okay, these are the people that are coming. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a very difficult life for the Cubans. And um, so we go there and we try to do little things to make it easier for them. Um, because my travel director has been there many times and he has many friends there. He finds out the needs of people and, you know, Oftentimes we go with suitcases full of vitamins or, um, gosh, guitar strings or violin strings for the local oh school. And so we always, we always bring things with us. Um, as a matter of fact, I noticed that Matt, when he advertises the trips now, he actually says right in there, part of your, the money that you're paying me goes right back to Cuba and this is what we do. Right. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, there's so much more when we go there. There's so much more than just looking at cars. Right. It sounds like it. I mean, just in the short amount that you've shared with me, I mean, who who knew? I mean, that, you know, you can't really stay legally as such at some of the hotels or. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, that just happened this last week. Uh, So it's. It's interesting. The rules and the laws literally change ah, frequently, put it that way. And that, that's been for the last two years. Uh, you know, they changed when Obama was leaving the presidency, and now they're changing as Trump is, you know, working in the, at the presidency. So um, it, it's hard to keep up. Things change while you're there, too. We were there once, and when we flew to Cuba, it wasn't legal to buy cigars and rum to bring it home and then flying home oh I can bring a hundred dollars with me this time and and then the next time oh I can bring unlimited cigars home if I want to I've never brought more than one cigar but (laughs) you know literally you know we try to keep track while we're there because things change all the time and it's it's the American government that's making the changes and um so we we try real hard to stay up on it and (laughs) You know, keep informed. Yeah. I also noticed at one time you did, quote, a spy camp. And that just sounds incredibly fun, too. Um, Yeah, that was in 2013. And um, it was. It was. I'm just thinking back. Um, But we were based in a little town of Beta, Nevada. And um, it was interesting because the spy camp was publicized. I guess it was part of, I'm sorry, my dog barked. I, I went That's in the okay. part of the house that I, I thought he'd be quiet, but he hears landscapers. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so let me, let me shut my office door and see if that helps. Uh, but yeah, Spy Camp was great. Uh, it was in 2013, and the park read about it somewhere. And they said, you know, you're not allowed to do this in the park. And they gave me all these reasons. And I said, well, please go back and read the brochure, because nothing we do takes place in the national park. Right. <laughs> um, I was very careful. Um, everything we do takes place in surrounding areas. Uh, but if people choose to go to the Death Valley National Park, which is where many cars do testing, um, they will be on their own, and, and we encourage them to buy a park pass and follow all the laws, but we won't take anybody into the park. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, my my whole career, I've had to be, um, I've had to know the law. I've had to be very careful, and 
kind of stand up for things. You know, I, there was another time that I was on Nightline on, on ABC News, and the Park Service saw that, and they told me that I was doing things illegally. Really? Yeah. Yeah, you know, that I needed a commercial permit and this and that. And I had to explain to them that the work I do is basically the same as breaking news. And I don't fit any of the criteria for doing commercial work in the park. And everything I do is editorial. And um, it, it was long and drawn out. Uh, but finally, they got the, the word from Washington, D.C. that, yes, everything I was doing is legal and let it go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you, you have to, in, in this business, um, I'm not getting off track, uh, but yeah, in this business, you really have to know the law very well. And, and with the spy work, um, it's real important to, you know, stick to the letter of the law, which means you don't touch the vehicles, um, you, don't, you drive responsibly, uh, things like that. Right. And just probably, too, with the internet now, um, I'm sure, yeah, if some, I mean, it's, it's probably a, a double-edged sword because, if, like you said, the car, cars are, are camouflaged, but they're driving down a public street. I mean, anyone can really take a picture of it. Oh, exactly. You know, people do it every day. And most, most of the time, 99% of the time, everybody's seen the cars. The cars may even have been introduced already, and they're just testing old prototypes or, or test meals. Um, but you know, you can't miss a car if they're in black and white or, or black and yellow zebra stripes. <laughs> um, it'd be much, much more difficult if the cars were just painted black or painted white and you know, they weren't screaming, here I am, take my picture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you almost wonder if there's a little bit of that though, again, with the company putting the car out. You know, they stand a little to gain if there is some publicity, pre-publicity on a car as well. They do. You know, the test engineers, usually when they leave the proving grounds or their other facilities, are told, don't let anybody take pictures. Um, but there's nothing that they could really do about that. But the um, the PR people love it, and the advertising agencies love it. And I have been thanked more than once Um by people very high up in car companies for pictures, um, basically telling me that I've, you know, gotten them millions of dollars of free advertising. Oh, exactly. So, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of a, a love-hate relationship depending on, on who you talk to in the industry. But generally the engineers don't like me very much. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So do you yeah. think um, that you'd ever do a spy camp again? Because that just sounds like you taught everyone a lot of little skills and just yeah. things to look for. Yeah. If there was an interest, I would definitely do it. Um, you know, it's, it's you know, about a five-day program. And, um, you know, it's a lot of fun. Um, we often stay in the same towns with the... Um, the test cars and the engineers stay in. Um, we eat at the same restaurants, oftentimes, you know, at the same times. Um, and often it depends the engineers and their personality, but oftentimes when they're not testing, they're friendly and they want to take pictures with us. And, 
again, it's this love-hate relationship. It depends if they're behind the wheel or not. Mm-hmm. So are there other... So, yeah, I... yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so yeah, I, I would consider if there were, you know, a good handful of people that wanted to do that again. Yeah, it just sounds like so much fun to kind of <laughs> go out. Yeah. And, and I think there's things to learn, too. I think you probably had to learn it if you didn't. Did you have any previous, like, background in cars or relatives that were into cars? Well, I guess you mentioned your husband, um, right? Well, yeah, you know, my husband was the car guy in the family. Um, so it was it was a big help because he was able to you know, help me identify the cars and, and all. Um, so that, that was the number one help, but, um, you know, a lot of it, also my background, I, I was a, uh, before I got my photography degree, I was a criminal justice major. And so I also had that background and the sensibility, <laughs> common sense. Um, and, and that really came in handy as well. Um, and I was patient, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of surveillance, a lot of waiting around you do. And, um, I went through many, many, many audio books, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're someplace where, well, except for satellite radio, which wasn't as popular then, but you're someplace where, you know, there are no radio stations or anything. And so, you know, I just stack up on audio books and, um, get through some, some great pieces every year. <laughs> Wow, yeah. <laughs> so do they still do a lot of extensive testing, or do you think the testing is dropping back with some of the, you know, a lot of stuff's going to electric and, you know, more automation? Oh, no, they, yeah, they still do a lot of testing. Um, and, and even the electric would be done in, in places like Death Valley, you know, for hot weather and, and other places for cold weather, high altitude and other things like that. Um and either I covered all those other places as well, or I had people that eventually covered those places for me. Um, so there's always going to be testing done. Uh, as a matter of fact, where I live in Chandler right now, it, Chandler, Arizona, outside of Phoenix, is a really hot spot for autom- um, automation, basically. So Google, which used to be Google Cars, now it's Waymo Cars, um, I think this is where they're doing all their testing. Um, it, well, the majority of their testing. They even have people that are in a program where they can call them and get taxi rides, and they're completely automated cars. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I think I read this week that they're taking, they used to have somebody behind the wheel, mm-hmm. and now that person is going to go in the passenger seat. So there will not be anybody behind the wheel. Um, and then there are other companies here in, in Arizona also that do quite a bit of that. But as a spy goes, there's there's no value because the cars are out on the road and, you know, it's, right. it's all public knowledge. Um, but when they do work on the prototypes, you know, they, they do go to places like Death Valley. Um, so there will always be, always be something there. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like I said, high altitude or cold weather and so on. So did you ever go to any of the cold weather locations or you pre- preferred kind of the hot weather and that was closer to your home base? And- um, you know, I preferred the hot weather. Uh, I did go to Colorado a few times, which is where they do a lot of um, high altitude testing. And um, I had people in other places in um, 
northern Michigan or in Canada, or even in uh, near the Arctic in uh, in Sweden, doing uh, a lot of the cold weather testing. Right. But yeah, you know, for me it was just too difficult to get away. Like I said, you know, for the most part, for many of those years, I had young kids, so I. It was bad enough to go in the summer and, and to go on other business trips throughout the year, but yeah, I couldn't I couldn't get that tied up where I was going, you know, to Europe and elsewhere to, to do the testing. Right. Well, so we're at that point in the program where I always like to ask, um, what's in your bag? And it, it sounds like your bag has probably changed some depending on the situation, but share with us um, what would be in your, quote, spy bag. Uh, my my. A host spy bag? Your what? Yeah, your host spy bag. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, well let me, I'll tell you what was in my regular spy bag first. How's that? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. So when I would go to Death Valley, um, I would have, um, I would use a Canon EOS system. Um, I used uh, the 50D. I didn't upgrade any because I didn't need anything bigger. I mean, they're just huge, huge cameras. Um, my favorite lens is the ancient Canon 35 to 350 zoom. And that was uh, the lens I used almost all the time. Oh, wow. But because, yeah, but because of the weather conditions and because I never knew what I was going in, I didn't like changing lenses because uh, there was so much dust. So in my camera bag when I was in Death Valley, I would usually have four to six cameras. Um, all with different lenses on them, just in case I needed to grab something different for something else or if there was some sort of failure. And now I use, I, I still have my Canon, although I've thinned it out a bit, uh, but now I really use um, a variety of uh, Sony cameras. And I have an A6300, and again, I just had this thing about changing lenses. So on that A6200, I keep a 90 millimeter Sony macro lens, and I use that now for a lot of my hood ornaments mm, and such. Nice. Yeah, and when I'm just shooting cars, but not the details, you know, close up, um, I use a, a Sony RX10 Mark III. And that has a lens that doesn't come off, and it, it goes from, I don't know, maybe, I, don't quote me on this, but about 24 millimeters to 600 millimeters. Oh, wow. That's and better reach. And it's, yeah, it's exceptional quality. Um, they have one that's, the quality is different, that actually goes to 1,200 millimeter, um, which is also amazing for, you know, $400. But but the RX-10 Mark III is, is what I use most of the time. And then I keep a little Sony RX-100 Mark V in my purse. It's just like a little pocket camera. And um, I kind of wish it had a stronger zoom. But it's, it, the quality is, is so excellent that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I primarily use Sony's these days. They're a lot lighter, then, too, then, aren't they? Well, they are. Um, although then, I, like I said, I carry three cameras all the time except one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, that, but you know, again, that's just the way that I, I shoot, and that's how I'm comfortable shooting. And um, I, I do have a couple of older ones and a fisheye and some other lenses for backup if I'm, I'm going someplace that, you know, I might need it. Um, but, yeah, they're lighter, and... 
you know, the quality is just amazing. So that's what I've been happy with lately. <laughs> what, do, you, do you prefer larger memory cards or smaller memory cards? I know there's kind of two schools of, you know, people think differently on that. Um, kind of in the middle. You know, sometimes I'm afraid if I go with the largest, if something goes wrong, I'm going to lose that much more. Right. Uh, so I'm kind of in the middle with memory cards. Um, but I will tell you, on an average day when I shoot, even though I may not need it, like I said, I have three cameras, and I probably have um, a total of six extra batteries with me, just in case. Right. And a couple extra memory cards, just in case. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's easy to start getting heavy in the bag, but... Um, yeah, I don't go anywhere without extra batteries and extra memory cards. Yeah. And then as far as storage, because I think that's a, a, that's kind of, at least it's come up on my radar of, you know, do you do you store it on a hard drive? Do you do, do back up to, you know, kind of the storage once you collect the images and take them? Yeah. You know, I have them stored and backed up on external hard drives. Um, I do have to have a better process because it's... Um, it's difficult to back up the backup sometimes. And mm-hmm. uh, but then you always worry about if everything's in one place. You know, if, if there's some sort of, you know, fire or something, you're going to lose everything. Um, so, I, so I do have to come up with a better system yet. Um, but, you know, there are weekends, uh, mostly because weekends there are more car events, but it, it's not uncommon for me to shoot up to 10,000 pictures on a weekend. Oh, wow. And, and again, you know, I, I think I was, we were talking about available light and crowds at different events, and I do shoot bursts of photos. And the reason is, is because the clouds are moving, uh, the people are moving. You know, I'll, I'll set up a photo of a hood ornament, and I'll go to take it, and then suddenly three people will come out of nowhere and, you know, right. walk behind what I'm shooting. Um, so I do bursts. And so it's not uncommon instead of taking one picture, I might take 10 to 20 just because things change so fast. Right. Um, so, yeah, on, on a given weekend, it's easy to shoot 10,000 photos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my first trip to Cuba, I shot over 50,000 photos. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I know. Yeah. You know, and then I've been there six, five times now. And so... Um, yeah, I have lots of photos of, of Cuba and other places. <laughs> so when you get, do you do a lot of post-processing or? Um, I do very little, actually. Um, you know, I have a Photoshop program and it's not a current one. Um, I know nothing about, um, I can't even think of it now. What is the one everybody uses? Light? Um, well, there's Lightroom, there's Photoshop, there's, there's. Yeah, I know nothing about two, Lightroom. Two big ones. Yeah. But... Um, but I do very little. Um, you know, I might sharpen the picture and I might enhance the color. Um, and that's usually about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, one of these days I'll take a Photoshop class. Um, unlike most photographers, and, you know, I used to get teased by my friends for shooting Sony years ago when they were only shooting Nikon and Canon. Um, I also just shoot JPEG. I don't shoot in RAW. And... One of the reasons is, is that I shoot so many photos right. that it would just be crazy. 
Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is, the other reason, you know, I, I have no experience in Raw, um, but I have done some wonderful artwork, um, printed pieces, gosh, I think up to 72 inches wide with no problem. And um, so there hasn't been a reason for me to shoot Raw. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, um, that's true. So, yeah, I've never done things the traditional way in any any part of this career has been non-traditional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I noticed there was an article a couple of years ago that you were shifting from your espionage work to more fine art. So that mm-hmm. that's a good um, that's good for people to know that you don't necessarily have to photograph everything in raw and yet you still have you know quality images that can hang in a gallery as you've been doing. Right, right. You know, it's just, you can do a lot with a good photo. Um, you know, you do need the megapixels. Um, I can't shoot with an iPhone. I've seen great iPhone photos. And, you know, I try. I have it with me all the time. But I think my biggest problem is that I want to make it bigger. And I really I see too many flaws when I go too mm-hmm. big. Um so, yeah, I, I think that if anybody wants good photos, you know, put your phone away. That's just my opinion. And use a real camera. They're, you know, great ones that aren't much bigger than your phone. Um, but other than that, there's a lot that you can do with JPEGs. And, um, you know, maybe one of these days I'll I'll try raw, but I haven't had the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I completely yeah, when you shoot, Yeah, when you shoot 10,000 pictures in a weekend, I think raw would just be crazy. Yeah, that would, I just, I'm just now, my head is just spinning with the storage just on that, just. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So for your printing and your gallery work, do you do, do you send out your images? Do you do them yourself or? Um, You know, I send them out. um, And I can't even think of the name of the lab that I just started using. Um, I had one picture that I had a client that wanted this this beautiful Corvette picture that's oh. 60 inches wide and I sent it to three labs and besides I, I, I there, there were so many problems with the image that that they you know they just couldn't do it um, one thing is they must have it was canvas and they must have folded the canvas immediately Ooh. and so the fold lines the dye was all cracking. It was oh, just awful. Kidding. So I finally found a great lab that made it perfect, and I am so happy with them, and I can't even think of their name without going through my email. Well, when you get a chance, you'll um, just send it, because we'll include that in the show notes, because it is. It's so hard to find a good lab sometimes. It is. It was, it was very difficult um, to find somebody that can make it as large as I want with the quality. And... Um, so yeah, I was I was just thrilled. Um, right now, I have four four of these pictures that weren't didn't work sitting in my garage, ready to be destroyed. I can't even display them anywhere because the quality just doesn't meet my expectations. Yeah. Um, and of course, when you tell a lab that you know it's not going to work, um, they tell you to keep it. <laughs> you know, they don't <laughs> want you to send it back at that point. And there's nothing I can do with them except maybe. You know, maybe I can save the frame. <laughs> maybe, right. It, that's just it. Yeah. Like, I can't use it either. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when you're doing your gallery shows, are there certain types of images that you feel people are more drawn to? I mean, what kind of draws them to an image? You know, they've been, um, 
mostly Cuba and in Route 66 and Hoodornaments. And it's pretty much been an equal draw. Um, you know, Route 66 brings back a lot of memories for a lot of people. Um, but it's, it's been pretty much a, kind of even. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm trying to think what pictures sell. And again, it's, it's pretty much a, a combination of all three areas. Do you have a wish list of your own of particular cars or compositions that you still are, would kind of like to capture? Oh, gosh. You know, I think that for me, I'd love to go somewhere, um, you know, some sort of car show where there are a lot of early cars and magnificent hood ornaments that I haven't seen before. Um, you know, part of the problem is going to the same car show every year or whenever is that oftentimes the same cars are there. Oh. And I'm not getting anything new. Um, so I'd love to travel and see other examples, you know, that, that I haven't shot before. Um, so it doesn't really matter what they are. Uh, just, just things that are new to me. Yeah. Kind of the sky's the limit. I think on cars, cause there's, they're so, yeah. I mean, just looking at your images, there's things I haven't expected in ornaments and it almost brings to mind that I'm sure some people, they have things custom made essentially. So there's some one of the, one of a kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there definitely are. Um, maybe even more so now, believe it or not. Yeah, I could be wrong, but, you know, now people have rat rods and, you know, they put all sorts of things on them. Uh, but, yeah, there were a lot of custom body card cars in the past um, and a lot of different, like, light, lolic, uh crystal ornaments and um, just fabulous pieces. And... I just haven't seen them all. I keep on telling people that's why I have to go back to Cuba too, because there's probably about 60,000 old American cars on the highways and on the roads in, in Cuba, and I haven't shot them all. So oh, no. I need to go back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So the people mm-hmm. that have the cars in Cuba, they may just not be at some point drivable, don't they? Or do they just kind of sit and in storage or? Um, you know, they they make them work one way or another, or they use the parts as donor parts for other cars. Hmm. Uh, so you'll see a lot of strange cars in Cuba that you can't quite figure out what it is. Well, you know, perhaps there were in accidents and, and other things over the years, and they just kind of built a new car. <laughs> wow. So, you know, it might have the front end of one car and, you know, the back of another Um Usually the headlights and, you know, the tail lamps are all different because they weren't able to replace them with, with the factory ones. Um, yeah, so there's, sometimes it's hard to identify cars in Cuba and the way they're put together. Yeah, I think, yeah, I hadn't even thought of that, but I suppose that's completely true. Yeah, and then sometimes we think you know what it is. Um, you know, it could be a Cuban version, and I'm sorry, a Canadian version. And so that throws us off a little bit, too. Um, and then you have a lot of European old cars as well there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yes, there's always something to see in Cuba. <laughs> <laughs> so my last question is, if you could have any superpower, what, what would that be and why? 
Oh gosh, that's a tough one. Um, you know, maybe because the spy being invisible would help. If I was still doing the spy work, um, maybe flight now because then you know I can act like a drone and get all sorts oh, of different yeah. angles. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That's something I haven't tried. You know, I do see the drones out there, but it's just that's a whole nother. <laughs> so thank you so much today for your time, Brenda. I really appreciate you taking time out of your packing to chat with us and share and get us out there and chase some more cars. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, it was my pleasure, April. Thanks for for asking me to be on. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Really enjoyed having hearing what Brenda Pretty had to share. Just a couple tidbits. We all probably want to be that spy photographer, but again, it's important to watch no trespassing signs. Private property is still private property. If you do get into drone photography, Be aware, some national parks and other places, drone photography is outlawed and you could face fines or charges. So check out my website at fallphototrips.com for 2018's upcoming trips. And please, I love your comments and feedback. Drop me an email at april at aprilart.com or check me out and leave some feedback on iTunes. Safe travels and thanks again for listening. This is April with Eyes for the Road. Take care.